No bras? Of course not. Nobody wears those anymore. Nobody except us drill sergeants. Yeah, but look, Estelle. You can see our nipples as plain as day. Daddy, don't be so clinical. But it's a modest. So I'll get some sandpaper. Look, young lady, when I was your age, when you were my age, you all wore brassieres that made your tits stick out like torpedoes or something. Tits? What's this tits business? Sounds like I'm back in the barracks. All right, then. Mammary glands. Halloween 2022 Special. This year we're Craven some Cronenberg. We're bringing you Wes Craven and David Cronenberg movies all Halloween season from September to October 31st. Experience the visceral thrills with movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Rabbit, Last House on the Left, and more. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from Clothesploitation.com and I'm joined by co-host Martin. How's it going? Uh, we're doing pretty well. We're um, we're knee deep into the Halloween season on our podcast here. We've been doing uh, the uh, Craven some Cronenberg month for well, I should I always say month, but I, I truly mean season. Craven some Cronenberg season uh, for the last two episodes, and we've covered a Craven movie and we've covered a Cronenberg movie. So we are we are well on our way into the Craven some Cronenberg and. Uh, today, because we have already, you know, done both of them, we're gonna switch back again, and we're gonna do a Craven movie. And I'm wondering how people feel about this uh, switching back and forth between directors. It's kind of a cool idea, I think. Kind of gives you a a little taste of two different styles. I like it, and I think well, like uh, watching it for the sh- for the show too is like kind of gives you a nice little uh, palate cleanser. Well, even if they don't like it. Tough shit. <laughs> this, um, it's too bad. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're continuing it. <laughs> Put a lot of thought into it. Um, no, but seriously, I th- it is nice because, I mean, I think because we do do two months. We do September and October. And usually we have a bonus film in there because they've been releasing some type of horror film, you know, in theaters for us to go and check out during this time. It's always, you know, it's nice because... When we've done the theme months, we've usually done. It's been like half and half. We we because we've done Carpenter, which was great last year because we both love Carpenter, but that did become tedious after time. When we did the Saw retrospective, that was the definition of tedious. Not the same director, but because it's the same franchise, same yep. idea, same thing. When we did Halloween, even though we have different directors and producers and stuff t- getting their hands on it, it becomes a slog sitting through, you know, the same thing, basically, you know, the same concept over and over again. So not only are you getting fresh concepts with each film, but you're getting fresh perspectives from two different directors. Yeah. I I think it's a fun time. Like I'm enjoying going back and forth between them and just seeing the differences between the two directors. Um, The fun thing about it too, is we're doing like some of their early work. We're kind of jumping into like the, the more mainstream work that they've done. Uh, Both of them having had, you know, time periods where they did, um, you know, early movies that weren't really recognized and then kind of jumped into more of the, the, um, you know, critically praised movies that they, they did later in their careers. So, uh, we're kind of we're kind of jumping through all of those areas, and I think it's it's cool um, cool little prospect that we've got going on. So uh, we're so we're jumping back into Craven, West Craven, and actually, you know, we we already we started off with his like, you know, 
the film that really put him on the map, the, the big one. Um, you know, before Scream, before he did uh, movies where he was really, you know, praised for his meta-commentary, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was the big one that, you know, kind of got him there. Um, he had done movies before that, of course, and movies that had some critical acclaim earlier on, but Nightmare on Elm Street was really the big one that, that put him into, like, mainstream critical success. Um, for this episode, we're going to jump back from that movie, and we're going to go to Craven's literal first directorial debut. Um, prior to his direction, uh, you know, he, he was a producer on hardcore porn movies. So <laughs> uh, that was the, you know, he was kind of doing that on the side for his, uh, um, you know, work in, in film. And um, a lot of people got kind of got their start that way, like, especially during the time frame of the. 70s, uh, you know, when 42nd Street was really big, um, porn was really making a comeback. Um, there was a, you know, a, a really a blossoming of uh, sexual content at that time, and um, it was all the rage to, you know, to make porn, to make triple X movies that you were going to actually show at a theater in New York City. And um, so a lot of people got into that before they really started making a name for themselves. And, um, you know, normal, I guess we would call it normal movies, norm, movies that don't have, you know, full on penetration. <laughs> um, so we're, you know, we're in the midst of that. And Wes Craven gets a call from Sean Cunningham. No, no less. Um, Sean, as you know, would go on to make Friday the 13th. Um, and in this case, he was kind of the producer on, on uh, the movie. And he asked Wes Craven to write and direct it. And what became of that was Craven's first movie, The Last House on the Left. Um, And for Last House on the Left, we do see in this, you know, early 70s movie, a lot of uh, similar ideas to... um, Every Rob Zombie film. <laughs> no, I was actually even was the actually, new even the new monsters. <laughs> yeah, no, I was actually going to say that we have a lot a lot of um, crossover between this movie and the X rated movie, the triple X rated movies that were coming out at the time that Craven was working on. You know, um, the Last House on the Left is not a hardcore movie, but it does have instances that could cross over into it. And actually, during the 70s, too, one of the big things that um, uh, producers try to do with these movies, and you'll see it kind of uh, in movies that had, like, foreign releases, they would love to take, like, a regular movie that was shot and it didn't really have pornography in it, and they would love to insert hardcore scenes that, had, you know, didn't have the actual actors in it, it had just like you just see like the genitals and you just see like you know a massive schlong in there and it's like oh wow i guess this you know our protagonist has a massive schlong for some reason um and you would basically get this hardcore scene that was totally out of context from the rest of the movie like maybe there would be a sex scene in the movie that they could slip in this hardcore scene after the fact um and we see that kind of in in a lot of different movies, like Thriller being one of the big ones. Like uh, Thriller, A Cruel Picture is um, kind of in the same vein as The Last House on the Left in that it's like a rape-revenge type uh, movie. And that one does feature very unnecessarily 
like lots of um, graphic, gratuitous, hardcore sex. Like that's also meant to be like rape. <laughs> it's it's definitely not a uh, a movie that you watch and you're you're like, wow, that was totally necessary to have like hardcore pornography in this movie. Um, they did it with a lot of things though. Um, you don't get that with The Last House on the Left, but what you do get is a movie that really um, pushed some boundaries and at the time was banned in a lot of different areas because of its violent content, the um, the rape and molestation that takes place in it, and the basically the implication of what it's saying, you know, of the brutality of the themes of the movie. Um, so I'm wondering, had you seen the movie or known about it prior to doing it for the podcast? Um, as stated before, I have not seen the film, mm. but I know about the film. Mm-hmm. And know it's, and I've known it's Wes's first foray into proper filmmaking uh, outside of his original pornographic export, uh, exploit, you know works so yeah i mean you know wes he he was really not you know he wasn't like he was making pornographic movies but he wasn't like i don't know i don't know how to describe it like he was not really directing them or anything like that he was more just like on the in the background for for making the pornographic movies so he was the guy he was the guy yelling show us your boob yeah, are you, he, yeah, he was giving directions. He was like, uh, turn to the side. Uh, we can't see enough. You know? Um, but, and, and also, he was a professor at the time, too. Um, at uh, um, Clarkson. Clarkson, yeah. Which was uh, not, it wasn't Clarkson University at the time, but it was. Clarkson it's, Tech. It's, yeah, it's basically Clarkson. Um, and so, it's an interesting shift for him to move from uh, Clarkson as a professor and pornography <laughs> to directing a film but The Last House on the Left you know, in 1972 it really put him on the map and maybe not necessarily in the best light you know, for this type of film because he definitely took a lot of flack for this movie particularly um, because we're talking about a time period when there weren't really a lot of movies that were pushing boundaries like The Last House on the Left does. And it does deal a lot with the sexual awakening of the 70s, um, as we'll talk about with the, the kind of the dialogue that it gets into. Um, and then also it deals a lot with um, violent overtones of the American society at the time. And we'll talk about that, too, like the themes that, that occur in The Last House on the Left and where those come from. Um, what do you think about, like, how, how, do you, how do you rectify the fact that this is where Wes Craven started versus where he wound up, you know, with, with A Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream into the, the canon of popular culture? It's kind of weird to think about him starting out with The Last House on the Left. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it is, but, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, this is, like I said, I so I haven't really do, done the reading that you've done on this. You know, I'm going to do that after the fact. But my mind kind of piecing it together is, you know, if, you know, him working on pornographic films, so having that experience, you know, shooting, 
sex, nudity, etc. You know, being familiar with it. Jumping into filmmaking. And then kind of taking the next logical step if you're going to, like, okay, I can't make a porno and sell it. How how can we kind of, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, extend that? Well, what if we made a film where, you know, these people are put into uncomfortable situations and, you know, rape? Mm-hmm. Because it, I don't know what caught, and again, you would be somebody more, because I haven't really seen a lot of, like, you know, the whole rape revenge film. It's, a, I know of, you know, films, I have, it's not a, a genre that I've really, you know, sat down and said, I'm like, I'm going to watch this today. So, like, you, like, you know, things like I, I spit on your grave and stuff I haven't seen. Know about them, but haven't seen. So, I, and with a lot of that being coming out in the early to mid-70s, my question is kind of like trying to piece that then with like the time period like what what's the implications that they're you know the things that they're trying to say in the film mm-hmm. um i'm not exactly sure uh that's always something that's kind of left always left me you know a little stupefied because you know thinking back to the 70s like the whole vigilante like you know premise i get you know mm-hmm. black exploitation i understand you know where that's coming from this as like a type of film and genre has always been one where i've you mean like the rape revenge genre in, in itself that and you just push you know pushing it there i just because i think overall the 70s you know the late 60s and especially you know into the 70s for filmmaking was very much a let's not just with like grindhouse and stuff, but in to- in totality was like you know just like let's push boundaries, you mm-hmm. know, on what we can do. I definitely think you know as we talk about the like the proliferation of sexuality in the seventies, like there was a there was a time, and we you know obviously we're definitely not old enough to have lived through that time, but there was a time you know in the late sixties and the early seventies you had the hippie. Uh, kind of free love sort of blossoming but there wasn't like th- th- even the last house on the left you know it somewhat has hippie elements to it but um, it was more of a blossoming of recognizing that sexuality had been pretty much censored for, throughout a lot of film history you know in the 60s we were starting to get a little bit of that um, especially in the late 60s uh, we, you know we, there were always like these fringe movies and pornography that was sort of being made during that time but a lot of it was really censored and we even see that in in movies like psycho which you know came out in the late 60s and had uh early 60s yeah in the i'm sorry yeah in the early 60s and had to basically self-censor itself by going with a black and white scheme because of the you know the presumed violence of it it, it has always been sort of the idea that film, uh, especially marketed towards the mass market, was to be a little bit more neutered than, you know, movies that you would you would necessarily be interested in seeing. And, and so that, that kind of happened throughout the 60s uh, until we got to Hammer, which kind of in the, in the mid-60s. Yeah kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit and it said you know what what if um we kind of infused a little bit of sexuality what, in these what things? if she had instead of having her uh bustier totally covered up what if we 
yeah. two, two buttons down. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's what we kind of see. And we see Hammer getting more and more risque as the uh, years roll on. And, you know, by the time we get to, like, the later films in the Vampire uh, tr- series, you know, with Christopher Lee or uh, some of the Dracula movies, we we are getting full-on nudity instead of just, like, the, the hint of it. Or well, I think... I think too. Again, like like I said, like I think because of the explosion of like independent filmmakers, you mm-hmm. know, with like the studio system nearly collapsing and like this outpour of of like art, like you know, studios giving filmmakers art- artistic freedom because like yeah, sure, why the fuck not? Like that's why. Like you think of like from like nineteen like sixty seven to like seventy two when The Godfather came out, like the jump in like what was like popular, you know, The Godfather seems tame now, but like back then, you know, the scene where Sonny gets fucking lit up, you know, poor James Conn gets lit up at that toll booth with all those squibs, that's damn violent, you know, and mm-hmm. like you know, and you have in like I think sixty eight when the Wild Bunch came out, that you know, that's a very violent film that was, you know, by Sam Peckinpah. That was like, you know, like the christening, like the kind of like a beginning of like anti-Westerns with like the message it was sending. So I understand like we're in that type of time period where we're taking like these steps and boundaries on like, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we pushed, you know, these ideas on like sexuality, violence, you know, further? But the only, like I said, when it comes to like rape revenge, the only thing I can think of is... Usually it comes from, like, you know, a place of, okay, here's this backlash against, you know, women's liberation and sexuality and sexuality in general, but it's not like they're they're showing the backlash, but they're not agreeing with that backlash. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I... And ba- basic, basically, you know, these people, you know, people are put in places of being called, like, you know, like harlots and whores, even though... You know they're not agreeing with that, but they're taking it to like the ultimate step of like, well, she was wearing that skanky outfit, so that's what she got. Right, and I th- I think like the Last House on the Left is kind of like an early precursor of the rape revenge, but I wouldn't call it. I w- actually would not categorize it as a rape revenge movie, even though it does fall into the idea of there is rape, there is revenge. We'll talk about how the differences between this movie and something like I Spit on Your Grave um, show a clear discrepancy between each other, you know, and especially since, you know, Last House on the Left, very early on, 1972, I Spit on Your Grave, not till 1978, did a little bit, uh, you know, had a little bit of a different um, vibe to it. Um, so we'll, t- we'll talk about all that as we get into the, the movie proper. Um, but first, let's take a break and let's talk about what we've got on the show for beer today um this is one that i actually went out and picked up from uh the store because i saw it and i was like you know what i gotta have this i i'm in the mood for something that i haven't had before and this is one of well at least i thought it was one of them i don't know if that's true or not um but i had seen that i hadn't checked into it and that's always a cue in for me like oh haven't checked into it (laughs) probably haven't had it so i'm gonna go ahead and grab it and it, it, hit, it you know, fit the, the sh- themes of the show now, so uh, I picked up Jack's Abbey's uh, Copper Legend Oktoberfest for this episode. Um, comes in a 12-pack, so that's, one, that's another thing that like puts it on the check, yes, I want that list, 
because you know a lot of times now we're getting like four four packs of Oktoberfests, and that's just not gonna do. That's for absurd, me, honestly. Right? No, exactly. It's, 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 it's absurd for everyone. You know what? Actually, because uh, hopefully we'll get Sloops on here mm-hmm. for uh, for the season because they just announced they have theirs, and Sloops famous for doing nothing but four packs. If that's a four pack, I'm gonna be. I think fucking... theirs is actually a six pack, to be honest with you, because um, it seems like in line with their other types of like lager styles that they do six packs with um i was um i was watching the other day i watched this uh this beer aficionado on tiktok and uh it's like pretty much the only i only watch like three people on tiktok and this guy's one of them um and he was talking about oktoberfest and how um you choose who you want to get an Oktoberfest from because he was saying there's a proliferation of people making Oktoberfest now which I would argue especially in our area I don't really see that I don't see a, like I don't see a, a number of people making Oktoberfest but um, maybe if you live in a bigger area you would but he was talking about how you choose and and he said that anybody who has been making a solid lager style beer um, in the past which, which also is not a lot of <laughs> Exactly, but but, but anybody anybody who who does make a solid lager style, you should probably trust that they're going to make a pretty good Oktoberfest. Um, if they're not known for making lagers, you know, if they're pretty much IPA heavy or something like that, then it's kind of like a gray area of like, well, do you like that place? Do you think they might do a good job with it? Get it? If not, then probably skip it. And I thought that was an interesting idea. Um, at the same time, though, I kind of disagree with that. Like, I actually am really interested in those breweries that make IPAs and branch out into Oktoberfest because I want to see what they do with those. Like, do they re- do they really mess it up? I kind of am curious. Like, is it a total disaster? Uh, or do they do a pretty good job with it and, you know, surprisingly make a good lager even though they are known for their IPAs? And we see that with, we saw that with Treehouse when we did it last week. Um, you know, they, they're primarily known for a lot of their IPAs, but hey, they make a good lager too, and they made a good Oktoberfest. Um, here, we have Jack's Abbey, and they're not really n- known for any one particular style, I would say. I think they do make quite a bit of lagers. Um, and I was just interested because we I see a lot of Jack's Abbey, and I've had a few of their beers. I don't really know them too well, even though they're kind of our neighbors. Um, so I wanted to check this one out. And I, I'm pleasantly surprised by their Oktoberfest. I think that it's a pretty good brew. And I know that you had some misgivings at first when you tried it. Uh, why don't you walk us through how you're feeling about the beer now? Um, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, kind of took some getting used to because um, even though I'm a big fan of when it comes to Oktoberfest, it being a Marzen instead of a Fest beer, because you get more breadiness, you get more maltiness. Like a caramel, yeah, car- a lot of nice, caramel nice, to it. Yeah, nice caramel, sometimes, you know, peppery, a little bit of, you know, pumpernickel. Uh, this was very, at first, like the bre- <laughs> the beer says, copper. Very bready, very dark bready, heavily malted. Uh, which again I like, but it was kind—it of, was kind of shocking. Maybe because it, you know, I was drinking it on like a light stomach, so like it was very filling and a little overwhelming at first. However, after finishing up number two right now, I like it a lot. It's 
everything that I look for in my Marzen. I want them to be light and refreshing and easy to drink. I want them to also, though, be bready, malty, have that nice dark bread taste to it. And this is definitely one that's heavier, almost like the Darktoberfest. Not nearly as good as Saranax Darktoberfest, rest in peace. But it's definitely more on that side of the Marzen scale. It's definitely not one that I could sit and say I can, you know, it's not in the crushable category. It's not, you know, something that I could, you know, drink a bunch of. Because, like I said, it is very malty. It is very bready. So even on a empty stomach, you do feel full from it. So, But I do like it a lot. It's very good. Um, it's, it's, you know, pretty damn good. One of my favorites? No, I think like last week, I Treehouse is much better than this, but I do think this is a fine offering. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's um, it's a pretty, it's a really good beer. I think that they've done a, a good job of the Oktoberfest style. I, do, I think you're right. I think the breadiness is really pronounced in this one. Um, we get a lot of breadiness, a lot of malt to it. Um, it does have, I mean, you would never mistake this for like, you wouldn't call this a fest beer. This is definitely, I mean, even though they, they do technically call it on the can, they do call it a fest beer. This is absolutely the epitome of American Marzen style because it has like the caramel malt and, you know, brown malt just fucking to the extreme. So you you definitely would never mistake this for a fest beer. It's not like a easy drinking lager type style. It it definitely has a heavy maltiness to it. Um, it's definitely going to be filling for you. Um, I definitely, even though I've only had two, I definitely feel you know in like a nice full. Hey, I just had a loaf sort of thing going on. And at uh, I think it's like about six percent. I'm gonna guess. Um, I don't have the beer right here in front of me, but I don't see the actual percentage on it. Oh, yep, uh, 5.7. So so around 6%, like this isn't one that you're probably going to be pounding down and, you know, having multiples of. But I do think it's a really good um, variation on the style, especially if you like your beers maltier. Um, Definitely pours out a nice copper color. I have it in my stein right now, actually. Ooh, a stein. Yeah, I have a stein. I have a, I got it from my my wife's um, <gasps> grandfather. It's a very nice vintage stein. Um, you know, passed down. Well, so. son of a bitch. Very very our, fun. Our Fiden's mule just sent me a uh, sent me a screen cap at Marcy's Discount Beverage. So that's out near Syracuse. This would be worth it though. Cranberry orange Keller beer keg from Genesee is mm. only fifty nine dollars. Ooh, get a whole keg of it. That's beautiful. That'd last me till Thanksgiving. We'll get it for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, well, uh, but, well, seeing as when Halloween comes around, uh, and we're doing Halloweeny things, Oktoberfest is going to be totally out of vogue. I That's know. probably what we're going to have to do. I know. Yeah, but uh, Jack's Abbey, I definitely would recommend giving it a, a giving it a check. I think they do get around. I think they have qu- uh, quite a bit of distribution. Uh, so if you do see it around, I'd recommend grabbing it because um, I think it's a pretty solid beer. Go in your goddamn Massachusetts Spurs. Nice little copper bullet for you. Um, 
like I said, you know, it's definitely not a fast beer. So if you're you go in thinking that you're gonna get something like light, it's definitely not that. To be honest with you, I think the only people who are kind of at this point that are paying attention, like Fest Beer v. Marzen, these people who drink Oktoberfest, mm-hmm. which isn't, I don't think, that big of a population part of the American well, drinking. It was actually funny because I went to an Oktoberfest uh, at a brewery uh, this past weekend, and uh, I was waiting in line to get my third or fourth Oktoberfest, I can't remember. <laughs> and uh, so I was in line at the uh, the the beer tent and uh there's an older lady in front of me and she uh had asked the bartender she's like what's this marzen style and they're like oh it's a it's a style of beer it's you know it's a it's a type of oktoberfest and she's like i've never heard of that before and it was just kind of funny because you know i think you're right i think only people paying attention to the difference between marzen and oktoberfest and fest beer are the people that like drink it heavily like us who really care Wait, about the differences waiting, waiting until the fall to come around like, yeah let's go exactly oh exactly and that's not to say i like both i am a big fan of both styles you know if you make a fest beer that's great i'm gonna pound them down if you make a marzen style that's great i'm gonna pound them down um i i like them both but they definitely do do two different things so um next up I would like to do the Sam Adams Oktoberfest. Have we ever had it on the show? Did we do Sam Adams Oktoberfest? I feel like we've had to. I feel like but we I have, mean, but it's, it might be nice to revisit it because, again, I've been seeing people talk about the Sam Adams Oktoberfest and I'm like, I love Sam Adams Oktoberfest. And to be honest with you, for a very long time, I used to love Sam Adams Oktoberfest too. Like when fall came around, it, that was like what I, that was what I was running to. I was I was heading to the store and I was like, I'm fucking buying the Sam Adams Oktoberfest. Yeah. You want to know what's one of the problems with Sam Adams Oktoberfest? What? Take a guess. What's wrong with Sam Adams Oktoberfest? Um, you know, it's looking, staring right at you. They changed the bottle. No. Huh? Um, I don't know. What is wrong with it? They spelled Oktoberfest wrong. That is true, and they do. I was gonna say that too about Jack's Abbey. They 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 spell it wrong as well. I agree with you there. I it, it would be nice to do because I don't think I've had, even though I like to think of it as like an old reliable when it comes, because it's one of the few offerings of Sam Adams that's still you know worth a damn, yep. you know, yep. between that and like the Boston Lager, like the only two that I'll find myself like, okay, yeah, I'll grab that. Um, you know, I mean, I it's, I I don't think I've had it in like a year, like I, a, yeah, two, I would say it's probably been years. a couple of years for me that I've had it because I I like I said I've been staying away from it. I've been like, eh, you know, I used to drink that all a lot, so I'm gonna go with some other people's. So it'd be maybe it'd be nice to bring it back and see how it is. But at the same time, here's also one of Sam Adams' problems: uh, they change the recipes too fucking often. Mm-hmm. You know, they tinker with it too much, so it very well may you know. I agree. I agree. I I I, make, I, w- I would like to try it again just to see, like, you know, does it hold up? Is it still old and reliable, like you said? Because it was the thing that I turned to, you know, every fall. I was like, I'm fucking heading out to get my Oktoberfest from Sam Adams. And that was it. That was, like, the only Oktoberfest that I would have. And, you know, now I've changed, but I, I would like to return to it and see if it still, you know, it brings me back to, like, what 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 is it, like, 13 years ago, 15 years ago? Oh, my God. Something yeah. like that. Just, bad, <laughs> Something just like about that. 
Let's say just about. Oh, and I'm Good on their Lord. webpage right now with their Oktoberfest, and right behind it is a beautiful, big Bavarian pretzel. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? And, and their mix has a fest beer too, so we could have we could do both. Oh, very nice. We could get the, we could get the variety pack with you know. Try them out. Try them both out. Yeah, limited release. The fest beer. Ooh, Let's all right. That's that's, that's 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 a plan, man. I'll I'll get that. Does it have the pumpkin in it? I mean, you can just of give it to me. Does. Yeah, <laughs> I'll try it again. The, let's see. Let's see. The sweater weather pack has Boston Lager. Fest beer, Oktoberfest, and the Jacko pumpkin ale. That's all right. I'll give it a try again. I I used to drink like the Mad Jack. Remember when they had the Mad Jack and mm-hmm. like the, you know, the bottles? I used to drink I, that. I remember. I wish distinctly I had it like on a camping trip, and I was like just drinking Mad Jack. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. So maybe that's a plan. Maybe we'll do that next time. Be fun. Okay, let's talk about the last house on the left. We're already thirty minutes into this show. We're no, we're not. We had to do a, the history of Grindhouse, so took a, <laughs> took a little while. <laughs> no, all right. So the last house on the left, uh, first, you know, directorial debut of Wes Craven. Uh, going into this movie, when you first saw it, you know, especially since we, so we we watched the uncut version. We ha- I have the Arrow Video Blu-ray, which they uh, did a really great job with this, you know, Blu-ray box set. They did like three different cuts of the film. The film has like. You know, it has it had multiple different titles at one point. It had different cuts, especially because it was censored in a lot of places. Um, we watched the unrated cut. So going into this movie, um, we even had uh, Wes Craven from 2004 being like, "Yeah, it's uh, unrated." Yeah, yeah, they yeah, because it was originally released, and it's unrated cut on like a DVD uh, that was released like probably early on in the 2000s, and I think. West cut a intro for that for that DVD, um, and I think um, West had been reluctant to actually return to the Last House on the Left for most of his career. Like he he didn't really talk too much about it. Um, I think at one point it kind of got him shunned until he went on to do different movies. And um, The Hills Have Eyes probably kind of brought him more towards the forefront, even though it does feature a rape scene, kind of reminiscent of Last House on the Left, but. Um, so the last house on the left is definitely a movie that feels very grindhousey. It is a very rough movie, and I don't mean that in the sense that it's not like a what they would you know colloquial colloquially call a roughie. A roughie meaning, I mean, like a rapey type of movie, which um, sometimes was a type of triple X movie that you might find as a roughie. But um, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the sense that, like, as a directorial debut, it is a rough movie. It is not edited particularly well. It does not have a, what people would call good cinematography. It is um, very rough around the edges. I would say it's very reminiscent of 70s porn. Yes, it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Like you, you definitely feel like you're watching like a very, very low budget seventies porn. Um, because it, it just does not have refinement to it. Uh, this movie was shot in 16 millimeter, um, which was probably pretty common for triple X movies back in the day. Um, however, it was blown up to 35 millimeter. So that process of taking 16 millimeter and then blowing it up is ultimately going to result in a lot of 
like artifacting uh, for grain. Uh, you know, because if you think about 16 millimeter film, it's cheaper, it's less, you know, it doesn't have as great a quality to it. So it was already fairly grainy and then blowing it up to 35 millimeters, kind of like taking a photograph that was like really small and then trying to enlarge it into a poster. Um, <laughs> you, you're going to get uh, some definite issues with the, the presentation. So um, the, the, the only existing copies of this movie now are the 35 millimeter blowups and um part of that means that you're getting like an extremely grainy uh less than refined movie and i think that makes it interesting because as the liner notes point out in the blu-ray that we we watched that you you didn't actually read um <laughs> the those well, hold on those are liner notes the fact that it's this thick bounded book yeah Make it, uh, you know, a novella. Sure, sure. liner notes. I mean, but but Stephen Thrower, who writes the the essay on that, you know, he points out the fact that like the graininess, the grindhouse nature of this movie, that and, and how it looks, certainly does make a difference in the way that the viewer views the movie because it does almost look like it has like a home video quality to it. Like Which it was, is even even more accentuated. Sorry to interrupt. Sure, but no. It's even more accentuated accentuated now because it's in four fucking K, so you get to see every little grain and you know yeah. while you're watching the film. Yeah, it's, it's clear, but you still you know it's sure. still you know uh, muddled uh, presentation. Yeah, I mean I think that home video element adds like a certain flair to the movie that you you, you know uh, probably adheres to like the people who you know when you think about grindhouse like this is kind of the movie that you think of uh, the the type of style that you're going to think of when you think about that um you know a movie that was shown at uh, a cd drive-in theater uh you know with like used condoms in the yard and stuff like that (laughs) and you know watching on big screen but like just you know you have to have your binoculars because you're trying to make out like the actual details of the movie that's that's kind of how i see last house on the left um so the movie itself, um, it, it, it kind of has a really odd kilter to it. it, it, it it's it's a, a movie that you know has serious themes to it. It has, has uh, themes of rape and molestation, humiliation, murder. And yet the film for a lot of the portions of the movie has almost like a sitcom-y feel to it, right? Like a 70s sort of like... You uh, wave... You ain't fucking kidding. Right, right? Like, it, it has, like, a almost like a, like, um, you know, it's almost like when the Brady Bunch had, like, a series episode, right? Like, because you'd have, like, the antics of the Brady Bunch, like, at the beginning of the episode, like, everybody's getting up for, for breakfast, and you're like, oh, Jane, what did you do? What's her name? What the fuck's her name? Jan. 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 Jan, what did you do? Like, oh, I spilled the jam. Uh, blah. And then, you know, you have the laugh track and the, the, the wacky music. And then you have the serious episode where it's like, Jan gets into drugs. Um, <laughs> that, that's kind of how I feel about how the film kind of picks up on its its themes. Um, because, and, I, and I'm not saying that that is in any way like a bad way to film this movie, especially because I think that um, a lot of the utilization of like the cheesy music that David Hess sings, um, I think is like a juxtaposition to what we're seeing on screen. 
That music alone is what puts this film into fucking like seventies porn tier. Of right. just like you know, it's got like the um, wannabe folk. like Holland Oates folk music to it. Um, well, I was gonna say more like Simon Garfunkel. Sure, you know, yep, Simon not, and Garfunkel. Not Hall, not Hall and Oates. They weren't really doing in the mainstream then, but just like. Harmony, playing the guitar, this girl's getting raped, things are bad. Do, do, do. And, and David Hess is the rapist, too. Yes. Is, you know, he's doing the music and he's the rapist. Um, I do think it's, you know, it's an interesting juxtaposition. We do see this quite a bit in 70s movies, too. I don't know that it necessarily is all intentional, as like, you know, someone sat down and was like, hey. What if we put a like a jaunty tune to this rape scene? Like it would be a good juxtaposition metaphorically for the viewer to see this jaunty tune happening at the same time that a woman is thrown face first into the dirt and you know pants come down. I don't know that they necessarily made the connection, but I think like we kind of see it now, especially like critically looking at it. Um, I just recently watched another movie, Two Massacre at Central High, that came out from Synapse Films and. That also has a very similar style to it where we see like lots of like we see like kids getting blown up in lockers and stuff at school and there's like a rape scene where you know they're gonna they're about to rape a woman before a guy comes in and saves the day and it's set to all this very like 70s PSA style music like don't do drugs kids and stuff like that uh, and it, it's it, it's the days of your lives um, I, I like it was a very common trope at the time to do this, but I do think like there had there was some intention from Craven at this point with this with the song writing because he gives Krug the you know the main antagonist of the movie he gives him his own theme song basically it's like there's a Krug and Sadie theme song it's like they're driving along and he's fucking her I like to think it's like a it's the inspiration for Smokey and the Bandit yeah it's kind of it kind it's, of it's, it's literally like the exploitation version of Eastbound and Down like it is yeah <laughs> and it's even called like the baddies theme or something like that and it's like you know because this this theme particularly takes place when they're driving in their convertible they've already raped um one of the girls, Phyllis, uh, and the drug house that they're at, and then they've thrown them into the convertible's trunk. They're driving down the road, and Krug and Sadie are just basically having sex in the the back of the car because um, you see like Sadie like you know reverse cowgirl on him, and uh, it's just a really odd moment to have like this this you know jaunty folk song folk ballad playing at the same time, but it, it does seem intentional it's not it doesn't seem like that someone just sat down and was like well david has wrote a song let's throw it in the movie <laughs> um, so it, do it, you think do you think he wanted to write songs or do you think wes was like listen we don't have any fucking money uh, that's yeah that could be another that's another here's thing a, here, here's, a there guitar, just no money? <laughs> here's a guitar fucking yeah start coming up with shit wes i don't know what's right well fucking figure it out <laughs> yeah i don't doubt that either because especially because like the you know the kind of ambient score not the the songwriting itself but the ambient score is very 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 minimal it's like two or three synth chords like ding dong dong ding dong dong um it's very very minimal you're you might be right about that because the film was such a low budget production maybe they were just like hey david you can sing somewhat um, why, don't, why don't you write him write some music for this movie 
Um, I, I agree. How do you how do you feel about those those scores though? Like the the actual soundtrack that plays um, on top of very like serious moments, like you know Phyllis and Mary being humiliated. They're you know ha- forced to have lesbian oh, sex. Oh, like, yeah, like you got that going on, and you hear like road nowhere can't go home. <laughs> it's a road nowhere. You're all alone. Yeah, no, I mean, it's bad, but I, the one thing this film, and it's going to probably be the wrong word, so I'm sorry, but the one f- thing this film doesn't lack is charm, mm-hmm. because I think w- having Wes Craven at the helm, directing it, editing it, having his vision is what makes this what would be a dreary slog of, of a film. That's your stereotypical 70s, just exploitative garbage. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, yeah, it's only 80 minutes, but it's a slog to get through. I think Wes's charm is kind of what, you know, elevates this film. And I think that's kind of the same with the music, too. It's yep. not good, but th- and it's inappropriate at times. <laughs> but you know what? That's kind of like what was going on during the time period. And I think, again, because... Of Wes's charm, it has that charm where you're like, okay, eh, you know, this is what I, you're doing. I mean, I, I did, I do get the feeling that the inappropriateness of the music and some of the sequences that sort of play off like sitcom elements was intentional. Like, um, we the have, whole cop, el- the whole cop element is like straight out of like, fuck it. I mean, I know it's like a decade later, but like, it's very much like. Like the Andy Dukes Griffith of Hazard, yeah, right. that that well, not Andy Griffith, but like Dukes of Hazard, like you know, just like bumbling idiot cops. Like, there's a f- rape going on literally next door, and they're like, "What are we gonna do? You didn't fill up the gas tank, dummy? Guess we gotta hike 15 miles." Yeah, like <laughs> I mean, it definitely like I feel for, certainly for that is is you know is the uh, poking fun at the, the police and like. They do not have your best interests in at heart. They do not know what's going on half the time. Um, you're gonna this rely on the police. No one wouldn't fly because of that today. That alone. That see, it wouldn't be the rape and all that. That in the gore, which would get this film sidelined these days. It'd be the anti-police. You know, blue lives matter. But <laughs> I mean, the other thing that I really <laughs> like about how juxtaposing this film is between like the sitcom elements and what's really happening is when the girls are actually they, you know they try to score drugs they, they go into the apartment and um, not drugs grass grass yeah grass. sorry grass uh and juniors kind of lured them in and now they're they know like oh shit we're in trouble <laughs> like there's a bunch what, of people what, what, what do you do what are you doing going on some random asshole stoop and like <laughs> yeah. hey man you got some grass and Shia LaBeouf's like, uh, I don't know, um, crackhead, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's not crack because it's the 70s, yeah, so heroin. heroin he, yeah, yeah. He's heroin addicted. Uh, yeah, but but what and not only that, not only that too. Like, oh, what are you gonna do? We're going to a show called band called Bloodlust. What is that supposed to be like a play in Black Sabbath or something? Yeah, I think it's actually more like Alice Cooper, you know, killing chickens and stuff. Was, was Alice Cooper even playing that early? I don't know. Um, but, but what I like about that scene though, is you have that, the whole scene where they're like, you know, basically, oh shit, we're stuck in this apartment with these, you know, people obviously probably going to be raped 
and then you cut to the rich doctor and his wife who are making a cake for Mary and they're like, oh, I don't know if I made it correctly. I'm just reading the recipe in this, like, you know, Better Homes and Gardens book. And, you know, they're making, the, it's kind of like got the, the goofy theme music going on. And you have, the, they're like sharing kisses and, and like, oh, we're going to have such a great birthday for Mary. And, you know, you have that juxtaposing factor of like, wow, look at how the other half lives like so differently from these, you know, four people that just got out of jail. It's a nice juxtaposing thing of like how how we view different parts of society and how different parts of society have to act and react like you have the doctor figure perfectly fine you know they live in a nice place they live basically out outside of town and they live in the middle of nowhere and are enjoying their lives and making cakes and you know recipe books and Betty Crocker and all that shit. And then you have the drug dealers and the pederists and stuff like that who are on the opposite side of town and they get called the slums and everything like that. It's a very, you know, obvious but uh, necessary look at the different parts of society and how that acts and how that can become intertwined. And, and you know, one problem of, you know, you can't just you can't just throw everybody in the slums and say, hey, they live in the slums. We don't have to worry about those people anymore, because you know what? That's what happened on Skid Row, and that does—it doesn't work. You can't just throw everyone in one spot and say, "You know what? I'm just going to ignore those people. They'll be okay. They'll—they'll they'll live in their own area, and we'll—we'll we'll live in our nice estate." And I think that's kind of what the last house on the left does—is it kind of brings those things together and shows uh, what happens when you don't deal with issues, societal issues that we have. Um, it's a very bare bones take on suburbia, though. I do think it is. I think you're right. Um, the, you know, Wes Craven has stated in interviews about the last house on the left, especially after the fact, that it was a, um, a response to the Vietnam War, right? So, especially the Mile Eye Massacre, um, where we had American troops go in and basically massacre a bunch of people in Vietnam. Um, innocent people, babies, uh, women, raped women. Um, and ultimately they came out of the Vietnam war and said, Hey, it was war. We did what we had to do, right? We just murdered an entire village because we thought it was the right thing to do. And the public was kind of like, okay, it was war. That's what you do. And Wes has kind of stated that the last house on the left was at its extremity in some part because he was trying to show what you were con- what you were basically condoning um, by allowing American uh, people to commit these atrocities. You're basically saying, okay, you're fine with this. And so when they walked out of the last house on the left saying, wow, that was brutal, that was too gory that was that was absolutely disgusting um you were basically giving yourself a you know like catch 22 like how can you condone how what we did in war um but not see it in a movie and say wow um you know that i guess that's just what happens and so i i do see 
that happening in The Last House on the Left to an extent. I do see that the themes of this movie do kind of run into elements of like how do you condone what you're seeing and how are you watching this disturbing movie um at the same time i do think that west kind of left out the part that would really tie it back to the vietnam war and so i think that's probably why a lot of people especially critics at the time found it difficult to connect with the last house on the left in any meaningful way because i don't know that it really does make its point get its point across of what it really wants the viewer to see. You do, you can now, especially, um, get glean those themes from it if you're watching and also because of the context of how Wes has kind of pivoted The Last House on the Left to um, be defined as. But I don't know that the film really gives you all of that context. Uh, and it, it certainly doesn't give you enough context to think like, this is post-Vietnam War, this is... Um, you know, making a statement about that. Um, at best, it makes a statement about what happens when a family needs to get revenge. Um, and even that, I think, is kind of lost in the themes of, like, what is Wes really telling you about this family getting revenge? Because they seem to be having some sort of enjoyment about getting this revenge. And even at the end of the movie, though, they seem, like, very tired and very uh, worn down they still got the revenge that they wanted and it in part did help them get over their daughter's death. So I'm not really like, I don't think that it goes far enough to say like, is revenge bad? Like, does it create a cycle? Um, I don't, I don't, I think it's missing some elements to it that would really cement those themes. What, what do you think about that? No, I, I agree. I mean, um, I didn't really get any Vietnam analysis out of this. I know it's during the time period, and we're only a couple of years away when this film comes out from Vietnam wrapping up with the fall of Saigon. But I don't really get that. Not only that, the whole revenge aspect of the family, um, I don't know what you're supposed to take away from it, because, again, because the cops are so bumbling and foolish. Is it supposed to be a vigilante film at the end? Or, like, are we supposed to be rooting for the parents and them in their pursuit of vigilante justice? Or are we, you know... I I don't think... I think because they make the cops so bumbling and foolish and stupid, that's what you're supposed to kind of glean from it, but I don't know if that's what Wes wanted. Right, like... Especially, especially, especially with his, you know, track record. Granted, I think in almost every Wes film outside of Nightmare on Elm Street, because... John Saxon, cops are always bumbling fucking idiots. You know yeah. that's part of Dewey's charm in the Scream franchise is that you know he's a lovable goof, and these cops aren't like they're not supposed to be just bumbling fucking idiots that you detest. They're portrayed as like cartoon characters, like they're Tom and Jerry. Yeah, and I I think that's an interesting element to it too. Is that you don't really know what you're supposed to take from this, like. Is it that the family has no choice but to go after these people themselves because they don't have any faith in the police force? Or is it that, like, they should have waited for the police, but they took matters into their own hands and now they have to kind of live with that? It's, it's not really clear. And I also think that the film relies a lot on, like, fate, right? Because, you know, the, there's, like, the fated element of, like, they go back to Mary's house basically the woods around Mary's house. And then the, the killers, you know, weasel and Krug and 
uh, Sadie, they go to Mary's family's house on a whim and stay the night there. And it's like a lot about fate. And, you know, it's really hard to glean. I don't think we get enough context in the in the movie about its themes. Um, And I think that's where The Last Test on the Left kind of goes wrong. I think it's I, 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 I don't really think that it is a movie, especially now that is very um, offensive. I was thinking about this, like, in the 70s, this movie was deemed pretty offensive, especially because of its, you know, its rape and and the humiliation, especially in, you know... The whole, say, the whole tagline is, this is just a movie, this is just a movie, Right. it's just a movie. You know, I think, and part of that, too, was, is partially, like, homophobia, too, because a big part of that is, like, the lesbianism, where they keep talking about how sick it is. You know, and, and like, wow, two women, you know, touching each other. So sick. Um, I, I, I do think there, there's a there's an aspect of homophobia in there, too, that that kind of comes out. But um, if only Wes was directing porn in the 90s, right, right, right. 2000s where and I'm not I'm not saying that was like intentionally homophobic, but I'm saying like, you know, at the time in the 70s, contextually, lesbianism was like, oh, no way. Wait, wait, lesbians. Uh, you know, it was something that you saw in porn, but not really anything else. Um, but They're but not I, real, right? Exactly. But I think, like you know, too, the uh, the movie itself, um, it it doesn't. I don't know. It just doesn't really come together, and I don't think that it would be f- seen as so disturbing at this point. And I don't really. I didn't really find it too, you know, overwhelmingly like. Uh, amoral either uh, as you know as it's been coming to know and I think uh, you know for over the years it's gotten kind of a reputation that doesn't really precede it um, and like I was thinking too my, my wife watches the show Outlander and that movie or I'm sorry that show has a lot more rape in it than this movie has like and that's a show on stars that is pr- I would say more explicit than what we see in last house on the left. Um, it's just kind of interesting how we've progressed as a, you know, society within media that now things that would have been considered absolutely taboo censored, um, or even banned has now become like the stuff that you just see on TV. Um, I don't think that the last house on the left has, um, you know, it's it, it, an extremely explicit um, presentation. What, what did you think about that? Like, you know, knowing because you hadn't seen it, knowing the, the the storied history of this movie and, you know, how it's been notorious. What did you think about, like, what actually was presented to you? I mean, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I'm not saying about the. Con, like the content, I didn't really have a problem because we're fifty years out now from when this film came out. What we've seen in films in the past twenty years, you know, uh, is a lot different than you know. So I mean, like this, in comparison, does come off as tame. The rape elements and the violence, though not overly graphic, is still very visceral. Uh and you know hard to look at because more of the context of the situation than what's actually going on because again 
I think this film kind of works in the benefit of, as we always have said in the podcast for a thousand times, less is more, especially when it comes to horror films, with the rape and the violence that does happen, I think because by today's standards, it is so kind of toned down and more kind of off-screen and you're supposed to avert your eyes, that makes it more effective than the more what we see in today in film and TV where it's incredibly over there for you to, you know, watch. So mm-hmm. I still think it's effective and it's, you know, brutality and what it's trying to portray. But overall, it's definitely not anything that if you've seen horror films or, you know, violent films in the past 20 years, you're going to yeah. really, I say really be offended by Because and especially, and we didn't mention this, uh, but when like this film got remade in the early two thousand, I mean in the late two thousands, that was prime time for this film to get made remade because that was in the boom and the heyday of the Saw hostels. You know what what was going on with you know the uh, gore, you know torture porn that was going on there. So it would make sense for this film to get remade during that time period to kind of up that in. You know like. Why would you want to see Last House on the Less from 35 years ago when we could be doing this? Which I haven't seen the remix, so I don't know what they did to it to kind of make it differentiate, you know. But that was part of the horror, you know, that was the main part of the horror scene back then. So I can totally see why they would want to revisit it during that time period. But I think, you know, this still kind of holds up today for the effectiveness of what Wes actually did. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, it definitely does. I I think that, like... This I I think this is definitely you can see this is Wes's first movie. There's there's lots of issues with it. You know the the writing is an issue. I don't think that it is his best work as a written film. I don't think that is his best work uh, directing, and it's certainly a very rough movie. I think we would see him really come into um, his own with The Hills Have Eyes. I think he kind of learned from The Last House on the Left, and then he took The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, in a different direction, but still maintained the grindhouse exploitative elements of the last house on the left, and kind of gave it some direction that I think the last house on the left is kind of missing. And I think that's what um, probably in in you know 1972 when the film released, I think that's what people were seeing is that like the film lacked direction as to how they should feel about the things that were happening. And so that was a little bit more um, um, disturbing to them than anything else. The fact that, like, it's not clear. Are we supposed to kind of see um, the revenge as the the only warranted option? Are we supposed to see this as sort of like a moralistic movie about, like, don't be, don't be hoes in the slums? <laughs> I mean, like, it doesn't really give us very much... Um, identification and the other thing that's kind of weird about this movie too is like um the family is not even really that broken up about mary being killed i mean yes they're upset but like they go back home and then her mom kind of acts like very normal like not even in shock or anything hold on not like that the whole plan to get revenge is dumb 
and how they do it. He sets up like Home Alone booby traps, and then the mom goes out and lures Weasel out into the pond to give him a blowjob, yeah. which and then bite his dick off. I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> and, like what part? Like, do you think she? Do you think she came up with that, or do you think the husband's like, now, honey, this is the one time I can send it to you to fellatio? Wouldn't you think she'd be like absolutely, totally disgusted? Where the the last thing that she would think of would be like, I'm gonna put his dick in my mouth and then bite it off. You know, like any, literally anything else. I mean, it does have a good scene where she like accidentally zips, unzips the zipper. I mean, I say that in quotes, accidentally unzips the zipper. And she's like, you, oh my gosh, I got your tiny thing stuck in the zipper. It's kind and then of, we, Weasel's like, hey, it's, it's, it's not little. <laughs> you just caught me by surprise. <laughs> I, I mean, I do like that part. I think that adds like a nice bit of like levity to the situation. But at the same time, I feel like it's a little bit out of left field where she'd be like, I'm going to put his dick in my mouth. Yeah, I mean, like, again, like, it, it's just... It's just weird, because it's like, all right, family, our da- we found our daughter brutally murdered in the pond. Uh, uh, all right, I'm going to rub whipped cr- uh, shaving cream on the ground. You go out there and give this guy a hummer like he's never had before. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I do find uh, weird, too, like now that we mentioned that, is the fact that the film kind of draws attention to after they kill Phyllis and Mary in the pond, they like kind of all stand around like, oh to feel bad about that and then go back to exactly the way they were prior to feeling bad about that i don't really understand that moment either because it's like like do they have remorse because they certainly don't show it later on they and they don't act like they had remorse ever i don't really like i'm not really sure what that is implying um you know when they when they you know when they wash the blood off at the river mm-hmm. yeah and like oh um yeah <sighs> Like we kind of killed those people, right? I, I don't really, I don't really know what that was implying. Like that, if they were supposed to have remorse, it doesn't really last. And you know, are they just returning back to the the animal natures that they normally have? I, it's not really clear. I think that's, like I said, that's again where the last house on the left kind of misses what the mark on what it means to show with its themes. And I think that's probably why a lot of people didn't really resonate with the movie and kind of found it disgusting rather than whatever it was supposed to show about society as a whole oh and you're right too i typed in alice cooper on wikipedia and when i hit 1970s the first line is after the chicken incident mm, yeah so so is that what 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 do you think what do you think about we don't ever need to wear bras again <laughs> i just liked at the the beginning of the movie uh, where tits, yeah, his, tits. His, her her dad is like, I see your nipples. It's like, Dad, stop looking. Why, are, Dad, why are you looking so much? Tits. That's what you used to call them in the in the army in the service. I feel like I'm in the service. I know. There's a few there's a few lines in this movie that definitely are like suspect. Where you're like, a man wrote that line. <laughs> You know, well the mailman dropping off fucking letters. Yeah. He's like every every letter for Mary Cunningham. Well, you wouldn't know that she's the only seventeen year old in town. But what a piece of seventeen year old she is! I know. He's like, like he's like I like, like to hit that. It's like whoa! <laughs> just deliver the mail, God. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Stop going through it all. Just fucking deliver it. Put it in the mailbox. Put the flag down. 
You're like, Beyond your way, mailman. He's, a, he's like, I'd like to put it in her box. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a there definitely are a couple lines where it's like, whoa, Wes. And apparently, too, the 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 original script was a lot more um, explicit and uh, uh, definitely had a lot more of those elements to it. And apparently, too, Wes had grown up Baptist, so this was sort of like a coming out for him of being like, you know, fuck baptism. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go crazy. So, really interesting. What'd you think of the spaghetti and meatballs? The spaghetti meatballs. That meatball looked undercooked. Did you notice that? Yeah. It was a very pink meatball. I uh, would probably have sent that back and said, yeah, just that give would, it a little cooking. That spaghetti almost looked like linguine with how thick it was. Yeah, and I do like how. You know, they had Weasel, who's, you know, basically Christopher from The Sopranos. You know, he's... Christopher! Yeah. He's basically like, oh, this spaghetti. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Such good spaghetti. Just uh, need Adriana there. Like, Christopher! Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, I thought the spaghetti... I would probably give the spaghetti, like, a six. Based on what I saw of the spaghetti, I will I will say mom's outfit after the killing when she, they're having the spaghetti meatballs that nice seventies dress with the ponytail. Mm. What do you think of um, when she basically gets ready <clears throat> just to go outside and we keep seeing her switch from like you know her night clothes to like got to put on like a nice turtleneck sweater. Oh, when they run away in the turtlenecks, like I had to laugh about that. Del- delightful, and then like the. Dad with the Christopher Lee like you know yep. haircut yep. with like the sideburns like it's like oh I had to lo- I love that so because it was so seventies at her it was really seventies and it was it was the the sweaters really just make this because it was like they can't commit a crime they can't do this murder without <laughs> donning the sweaters like the, it's just that integral part of this you know this plan they, were, they got up and they were like uh, before you go downstairs and get the chainsaw put your sweater on. <laughs> Oh, I. By the way, speaking on the chainsaw, that is a great line too. When he's like at when he has the shot, uh, Krug has the shotgun, and he fires it off at him after Dad's already been running around with it. Just coming up the stairs, side, he's like, "Sorry, Krug, I can only find one shell." As he's chasing him up the stairs with the chainsaw, that's awesome. I would say the the chainsaw scene itself is a little too long. No, it absolutely is. Wes tried th- to stretch th- your tension a little too far there. I think the early 70s were just like uh, like Steel and uh, Husqvarna and Milwaukee probably just trying to get in on like, come on, we got to sell these fucking chainsaws. Yeah. No one's, no one's buying them. Because it's like, it's like a fairly small chainsaw too. It's, you know, it's not really that long of a chainsaw. And it's great when you can see this close-up shots of it, and you can see the blade's not even spinning. Yeah, yeah. And it, there's just constantly, like, these moments where, he, you know, he, he's throwing a chair at him, and it's, like, a very slow, like, I'm cutting through the chair. What do you What do you think of the whole Krug and Freddy? Do you think Wes would recycle that later on? Yeah, I do. I think. And, the whole, and the whole child rapist and murderer? Well, it, Kruger itself has, you know apparently historical context for for Wes so I do think that he did use Krug in this context as well as like another I also do think it comes from a clockwork orange too um in in some part um because it does have a, a similarity to um the uh the film or the book because the film I don't think it uh this did come out 
um, Clock, sorry, Clockwork Orange yeah, did come out before. Yeah, it did. Yeah, I know. I, I, I would probably say the, um, the, uh, the film, and I yeah, do yeah. think it was sort of like a reference to the droogs of a Clockwork Orange, um, because it has that similarity to it as well. Of you know, like the, the band of misfits and stuff like that. I, I, I think that it might have had some reference to Clockwork Orange too. Another rape scene too. That's Clockwork Orange's rape scene. It's very, very brutal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, we have to give the last house on the left. Oh, hold on. Oh, 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 you got something? You, yeah. What'd you think of Ryan Gold beer? When I looked it up, apparently at one point it was thirty-five percent of New York's. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say thirty-five percent. Like, wow, that is a strong beer. It wouldn't be a beer. No, it's thirty-five percent of the state's uh, beer, but it kind of. And I think in ninety, in seventy-six, it went out of business because they couldn't compete with national brands, so mm. they went. Because I was like, "What the fuck is that?" Like when they're drinking, you know, the beer. I'm like, "Is that old Milwaukee? Like, kind of like an old Milwaukee label." And then when you know you see it close up, it's Ryan Gold. Yeah, I didn't really notice it, but uh... drank a lot of Jim Beam in this film too. Right. So, on a scale of 0 to 10 racist portrayals of a woman transporting chickens, what would you give <laughs> the last house on the left? Oh, poor Ada. Yeah. I'll give it a 7 out of 10. Um, I think Wes's charm is kind of what carries the day in this. Um... I think without his kind of charm that he kind of puts to films, the film would be much, you know, lower rated because the cinematography's not that great. The music's awful. The acting, for the most part, is terrible. It's got all the makings of it to be, not be a film that's good. But I think Wes's charm and how he kind of constructs things. It ends up being, even though it is, and I can't stress it enough, an exploitation, you know, a rape revenge exploitation film. It does have his kind of charm and wittiness to it. It's only 84 minutes. It's a pretty easy watch. The violence in it is pretty tame by now, by today's standards. Um, the fact that they use less is more as a technique, you know, as a technique. A lot of it off-screen, not really seen. Uh, makes it easier to watch when you get to see the actual violence on screen. Is that, It's what makes it that much more visceral. Um, as you said, I think the script and kind of the point of the film is meandering and kind of incredibly lost. But I think overall, it is a pretty enjoyable film and especially within the exploitation genre. I'd give it a 7 out of 10. It's definitely not Wes's best work, but I can see, you know, kind of where he's coming from and then eventually where he'd go on from here. And I can see why it'd be, you know, a kind of a cultural flag post because it, you know, it hits, you know, all the beats and is definitely a precursor to the, especially in the 70s to the films that we'd see later on that would take the ball and kind of go further with it 
Yeah, I would give this a, I'd probably say like a six and a half out of ten. I think that it is a, you know, it's a fine movie to watch. I don't really think that it is the best in the exploitation genre that does this type of thing. Um, I do think it's one of the earlier, uh, you know, versions of what it's doing. Um, and it's definitely a film that you can tell uh, has Wes Craven's imprint on it, although he would really go on to, like, refine that later on in his films, especially, like, when we get to The Hills of Eyes. Um, I, I think it's, a you know, for an early work, it's fairly good. Um, it, it definitely does what it can with its low budget. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of story, it, it definitely has... Uh, a fairly good pacing uh it understands the elements of the rape revenge genre even though i would argue that in this movie the rape revenge itself is really not portrayed because the girls are killed um so they don't really get to have their revenge which is pretty much a component of the later rape revenge movies of you know movies like i spit on your grave which has a woman who gets her revenge this movie doesn't have that the girls don't get their revenge it's the family that ends up getting the revenge. So um, there's not that catharsis that you get from I Spit on Your Grave where it's sort of like the feminist perspective of she gets to come back and have her revenge and, you know, take out the frustration and the humiliation that she just experienced. She doesn't, you know, the girls in this movie don't get that. Um, I do think that the film lacks some context in terms of what West was really trying to get across here. Um, I think that the script could have done a better job of at least referencing, you know, if it was truly about Vietnam or about the tie-in to Vietnam and societal um, values at the time, we need a little bit more from the context of the movie to explain that. You know, it, it doesn't really go into that in enough detail that we get that, and I think that's probably where audiences kind of lost the movie. Um, and so it does sometimes just seem like we're supposed to... Um, not really side with the antagonist, but also perhaps partake in the violence that the family finally gets revenge in. And it doesn't really make a very good um, thematic um, point to it at the end of the movie. I, I don't really think that we get did we get much in the way of that. So I do think that you know it's a it's a it's a fun movie to watch. I think that it, it you know really is one that you should watch, especially since it has gained such a notoriety. But I do think that there are better movies in the genre, and I do think that this is probably Wes Craven's lesser film in his filmography. All right, so I can totally, I can totally see from this film, and I'm like, again, I don't know, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, how many other like hostage films are at the end, like make the connection from this like funny games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, yeah. right, home invasion movie genre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's interesting, pretty interesting. Yeah, so uh, for since we did a Craven movie, next week we're doing Cronenberg. And do you remember? What's that? Do you remember? I think we're doing Videodrome next week. Oh, do you th- you think? I do think. If I <laughs> if I have my schedule correct, I do believe. Well, why don't you pull it up? You know, you should start carrying around like a black notebook so you can keep track of this. I really should. Yeah, I have to. Is it Videodrome or Scanners? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Videodrome. Um, if it is Scanners, then people are going to get a, a nice little uh, surprise. But I'm pretty sure I it's... Almost, I almost feel like it would be Scanners just because Scanners came first. Nope, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it is Scanners, yeah. Yeah, 
I was wrong. It's scanners. <laughs> so we're doing scanners next. <laughs> we're doing scanners next time from Cronenberg. Yeah. Oh well. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. You know, even when well you make do. the schedule. Yeah, you know, the schedule, it's not, well, it's not even a schedule. It doesn't say the date where it's going to be done. It just That's says, true. Like, yeah, fuck, we didn't, so. I didn't really intend it to be like, we're going in order, but we were going in order. So, uh, so yeah, so we're doing uh, Scanners next week. Should be fun. Going back to a Cronenberg movie, especially one that has uh, some, some fairly good body horror in it. Uh, so you'll definitely want to check that out. I better not fucking disappoint because Rabbit was oof. I don't think it'll disappoint. No, I think you'll let's like hope. this. Let's hope. All right, so if you want to hear our episode on scanners, you can uh, pretty much subscribe to us on any podcasting app that you can think of. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, Good Pods, our home base at anchor.fm. Subscribe to us on there. Give us a nice review. We appreciate that. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just search for us on there, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. We have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash blood and black rum podcast where you can donate to us. We'll put it back towards beer. And you can write to us at bloodbikerumpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, uh, what you want to see covered on the, the show next time, especially for our Christmas season, which is coming up around the corner. And we'll definitely take those into consideration. Um, thanks for listening to our episode on The Last House on the Left. We hope you enjoyed that. And we hope you'll tune in next time for Scanners. And until then, take care.